But that's our goal this morning. So turn, me with, uh, turn with me to God's Word, if you will, in Romans chapter 12. We're continuing on in our series in the book of Romans. And we'll be reading Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. And for those who were here last week, we got to read Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, where it talks about, in full view of God's mercies, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him. And that's our spiritual act of worship. And then we do that by renewing our mind. Well, this week is really a continuation of that theme. You could really call it part B of what does it look like to live in response to God's mercy. So please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, and we're going to stand for the reading of God's Word together. If you will stand with me, please. We'll stand to honor God as His Word is the only infallible Word you will hear this morning. This is His holy Word. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. But to think so with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has given. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. God, thank you that each and every person here who is in need of your grace, in need of your mercy, Lord, has your grace and your mercy available, Lord, that you you give yourself freely to all those who call upon your name. God, all those in need, all those who need mercy, all those who need grace, God, all those who, who need forgiveness, who are weak, Lord, you promise that no one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. So God, our hope's in you this morning. And God, we cry out to you for your grace this morning. Grace for me. God, I am weak and I need your grace. God, grace for the hearers. Lord, we are all weak and we need your grace. Mercy for each and every one of us to to see you, to see ourselves in light of your mercy. And mercy, Lord, that would lead to changed lives. God, I pray that we would not just listen this morning, but I pray we would listen. God, I pray we would not just listen, but we would respond to you in our thinking, respond to you in our hearts. And God, would you give us fresh faith this morning? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, in a church of our size, there's all kinds of different preferences. People like different things. There's lots of differences. I was thinking this morning about how all kinds of little differences can actually end up separating at times, and it's kind of funny, little differences can be a big deal. I mean, I was thinking about my own personal love for coffee. Anybody here love coffee? Raise your hand if you love coffee. Okay, excellent. Now, now I'm going to start showing some differences. Who is a rabid believer that coffee should only be drank black? Only black. Okay, we have some of those. Now, 
Um, who thinks that coffee should have cream or sugar or anything else they want in there? All right, perfect. Who hates coffee? All right, so we have some of those, including Aaron, who is my fellow pastor. Um, great. Who, who likes tea? Anybody like tea? Like the cold tea. I'm talking, we're in the South, cold tea. Now, who likes it sweet? Who likes it unsweetened? Let's see those people, those weird. Okay, look at that. See, it's about half that number. And I was thinking about, you know, soft drinks in the, in the, in the old 80s and 90s, the Coca-Cola wars, and, or sorry, the, the soft drink wars. And, and I was thinking, you know, I really, I really never trusted people who like Pepsi. I don't know what my problem was. Anybody ever have that weirdness back in the 80s? They're like, I don't know. I don't think I'm be a friend. They don't like, they like, they like Pepsi. Or maybe for you, it was people who liked Coke, like me. Or what about here? Anybody here like cheer wine? I think, oh my goodness, there's way too many people who are like that cough medicine. Um, cheer, it's awful. You know, but what about chocolate? Anybody like chocolate? Okay, sweets? Okay, now who thinks chocolate should only be dark? I'm, I'm raising my hand because it really should only be dark. And who thinks that milk chocolate is preferable? All right, great. So we've seen some differences. Who likes, who likes that byproduct of making chocolate that's the waste product that they turn into something else called white chocolate? Who, who likes that stuff? Who, I have no bias. I'm just telling it like it is. You know, no, no preferences personally. You know, it, it's funny. It doesn't take much to, to separate us, even on superficial things. It doesn't take much for us to... Um, to divide and to think of ourselves as superior. I actually, I mean, I believe this and it's wrong and I know it's wrong, but I have to battle it because I think that my view of chocolate's superior. I, 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 <laughs> I do, I have to admit it. It's stupid, it's, it's ridiculous. I believe that chocolate, dark chocolate, is really the only God-blessed chocolate and everything else is, is what man has put into it. And, and, and so <laughs> I have a problem you know, I think all of us have, if we acknowledge it, you know, for those who like their, their, their coffee only dark, you think that anybody who has coffee that's not dark is a wimp, right? Anybody, can anybody admit to that? All right, good. Thanks for being honest. Look at that. We, we can allow these little differences to become big because the reality is all of us take some measure of pride in what we prefer and what we think is best and what we think is good. And really, all those little differences in small part, they don't just reveal preferences, but when we hold them tightly, they reveal something in our hearts that's called pride. We like to differentiate ourselves. We like to think that we're better than somebody else based on something about us in some way. And we can even use our preferences for dark chocolate and coffee with cream, no sugar, and Coca-Cola, mine, as Well, that's superior. Clearly, people who don't like those things are not as good as me. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but they subtly reveal our hearts. And and if we see it in small things like that, there are so many ways that I won't ask anybody to raise your hand that we can see ourselves more highly than we ought. We can view ourselves or try to puff ourselves up or see ourselves as more significant by many differences. Sometimes it's by differences in athletic ability. Sometimes it's by differences in intellect or apparent perceived intellect maybe or a different way of looking at things. You know, some people, I see, I see things more logically or I see things more deductively, whatever that is, or, or I see things more emotionally so I'm more in tune with people and then that's better or more superior. And so we can separate based on all these differences and what that really is what it reveals is it reveals this innate human desire in our hearts to want to elevate ourselves. Every one of us, even in comical ways, but every one of us 
we have this desire to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. It's an innate, it's an inherent desire. But you know, you know what takes, takes, makes us take a step back is when we all see that we have common needs. I, and I was just struck thinking about all the differences in our country right now that are being highlighted. There's a lot of differences, and I'm not talking Coke and Pepsi, that are being highlighted in our country right now. And there's everything from skin color to politics to all kinds of viewpoints, and those things are being used to divide. And the reason why they divide us is because each of us finds our viewpoint as superior. We place our worth and our value on those viewpoints, and we tie our worth and value to those viewpoints at times. Now, not at always. It's good to have viewpoints. It's good to have differences. Actually, diversity is very, very good. It's God-given. None of us is perfect. None of us sees clearly. But you know what levels the playing field is something that's happened recently. I've seen another, another effect in the storms that have come through. And we've seen, what is it, Irma and Jose and Maria, right? The three tropical storms, hurricanes that have come through, both through the U.S. territories and the United States as well. And, and, and one of the interesting things, the, the effect of those things, when, when devastation strikes, when storms strike, it, it has a way of clarifying what's really important, and what our needs are. And, and there's some good that's come of some of those things. And, 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 although there's a lot of loss of life and there's horrific things. Some good, the good that is seen is that we all see a common need for mercy for those people who've been affected. And in response to that mercy, there's been a dramatic outpouring of giving and all kinds of good works and good things. Because that, that's really how God's designed us. And God's not just designed us to see our need physically. God has designed us to, when we see and understand our need as people, our deepest needs, we're meant to cry out. Cry out like those whose homes have been devastated in Puerto Rico. Cry out and say, we, we just need help. And God intends for all of us to see our deep need for his mercy and, and cry out to him and say, God, we just, we need you. But then in response, the full view of God's mercies is, is meant to create a gratitude, a leveling, so that we don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We think of others rightly, and we think of the gifts that we've received in response to God's mercy as, as nothing to be added to ourselves, but as things to be used for the good of others. And that's, that's really what the Apostle Paul is getting at in these verses. He's explaining that, that viewing ourselves and others and, and, and the gifts and functions in the body, in light of God's mercy, it demands a sober view, and it results really in a sober view. A sober view of ourselves, a sober view of others, and a sober view of the gifts that he's given. If we see our need for God's mercies and see his provision of mercy clearly, we're going to want to present our bodies as living sacrifices in response and then how do we begin to do that? Paul told us about it in the last couple of verses in Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, we do that by renewing our minds. And then look in these verses. I want you to look down your Bible. What's the very first command he gives us? I say everyone not to what? Say it out loud. Think. Not to think more highly. Right? What is Paul doing here in these verses? He's showing us that this is the application of renewing your mind. Where does it begin? It begins in mind, and then we'll also see in body as well, in the church body. 
So really, verses 3 to 8 here are an explanation of what does it look like to live in view of God's mercies, renewing our mind, presenting our bodies as living sacrifice. What Paul really is telling us, he says God's mercies, and here's really the main idea for us this morning that I believe God has, is that God's mercies, they compel us. When we see mercy, it's compelling. God's mercies compel us to think soberly about ourselves, about others. And about the gifts, the spiritual gifts that he's given. That's that's what these verses are saying for us. They're they're saying, in light of God's mercies that he he talked about in verses 1 and 2. Really, we've seen in all of Romans, in response to these mercies, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We renew our minds. What does it look like? What's the very first command? And it's really telling, isn't it? The very first command about renewing your mind, the first thing we need to renew as people, as humans, is that we think too highly of ourselves. And we use every little thing to do that. We can use preferences and every little difference to think too highly of ourselves. That's our human tendency. So what's the first place that needs to be renewed? The first place that Paul addresses in renewing our minds is, is not to think too highly of yourself. Because the default is we will. We will think too highly of ourselves. And that can lead either to pride or depression. And Paul outlines some of these ways that God's mercies compel us. And the first implication of a life of worship flowing from beholding God's mercies is that it compels us to think soberly about ourselves. We're called to think soberly about ourselves in verse 3. He says, if if you are fully aware of the fact that you only deserve God's wrath, then you're not going to think more highly of yourself than you ought. That's how he can give us that command in verse 3 is in response to the mercy of God. If you start by remembering that I only deserve the wrath and punishment of God on my own, apart from Jesus Christ and trusting in him for the forgiveness of sins, I only deserve the wrath of God. So how do we think not more highly of ourselves? It's kind of awkward when it's in the negative like that. I get it. It's by viewing God's mercies. And that compels us not to think highly of ourselves. If you realize that you only deserved his wrath and yet he showers you with his mercy. Mercy to respond. Mercy to cry out to him. He's, he's made you alive mercifully. He's enabled you to respond. He's giving you mercies and forgiveness. He's giving you fresh morning mercies every morning. He's, his mercies are new Whenever we come to them, they're not dependent on our behavior or our performance. And that compels us to think soberly about ourselves. And he starts off saying, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought. In a context, then, to think of ourselves more highly than we ought is to think as if we deserve something. Now, where am I getting that from? Because if mercy is completely undeserved, thinking of ourselves not in view of God's mercy, which is what this is couched in, is to think that we deserve something. It's to think that we have worth and value in ourselves. To think more highly than we ought, it might look like ascribing value to our own opinions more than others. You ever do that? Do you ever think that your, important, your opinion is more important, more significant than somebody else's? I know I do. I know that when I'm arguing with my wife, and yes, I do, unfortunately, argue with my wife from time to time. Now, God gives me mercy to forgive me. But you know what? What I'm doing in those moments 
is I'm often thinking more highly of my opinion than I am of hers. How about you? Where do you think of your own opinion more highly? You know, think of ourselves as we function with a mindset and attitude towards others that maybe that our opinion must be heard or that it needs to be heard. You ever feel that way? You're in a discussion with somebody else and you're getting angry because you're like, they're not hearing my opinion. Why are you feeling that way? It might be because you think too highly of your opinion. Now, yes, they might not be listening. But why we get angry in response to maybe they're sinning against us even is not them, it's us. Maybe it could mean not only do we feel like our opinions must be given or heard, that our opinions are more valuable and important than somebody else's. It got quiet in here all of a sudden. I think it get quiet because all of us can relate to some degree. It could mean that for some, we believe that, you know, without my opinion and my perspective, the Holy Spirit can't or won't be able to work in the lives of other people. You ever feel that way? If I don't share this with that person, then they're never going to change, or they won't hear, or things won't be different, and we've thought more highly of ourselves than the Holy Spirit in those moments. That's not always the case, but if you find you feel like your opinion doesn't get heard and things will go off the rails in your fellow believer's life or in the life of the church, then you might be underestimating the work of the Holy Spirit and you might be overestimating your own work and value and worth. Consider your hearts, fellow Christian. Verses like this are convicting, aren't they? When, when do you struggle with feeling like you must say something or your opinion must be heard and why do you struggle? What are your motives? Are they for God's glory? Is that why you're thinking, I, I just want God to be glorified? And, and, and if you do feel that way, do you really feel that way? Is it for your motive, for your will to be done, or for God's will to be done? Is your motive to build up the body or build up your own ambition and others' view of you? This is how we renew our minds, okay? It's hard work, it's personal work, it's, 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 it hurts, but it's transformative work. Thinking more highly of ourselves, it might also look like believing that we're the only ones with the right perspective and that even those brothers and sisters who have the Holy Spirit equally, that their perspective must therefore be wrong because it's not yours. That's thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. And we're all guilty of that. Every one of us is guilty of that. You ever feel like when your opinions, your perspective, maybe your gifts are not recognized? You ever, you ever tempted to anger, to struggle? You may be thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. Instead of trusting in the Holy Spirit that he's actually to make a way for the gifts because it's his body. He cares about and loves his bride. He cares about your fellow believer. He cares about your workplace. He cares about your school. He cares about whatever that place is that you are tempted, whatever that setting is. He cares about your spouse. He cares about your children. You know, sometimes it could look like thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought could look like we hold our standards for Christian behavior more highly than other people's standards. Anybody here ever do that? You think that a certain way of dressing is more holy than another way of dressing and that certainly if somebody dresses such and such a way that they can't be godly or that they have problems. 
You ever have another standard of maybe movies or, or television or music? And you think, either way, either too loose or too strict. And you think, they're too strict. They're just legalists. Or you think, you know what, they're way too loose. They're licentious. We might be tempted in those moments to be thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. We might not be aware of our need for mercy and our fellow believers' need for mercy as well. How about you? Do you think more highly of yourself than somebody you think has a more strict or more loose standard than yours? Now, it's good to hold biblical convictions. It's good to hold standards, but we must hold them humbly. And it's dangerous to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Now, Paul, he goes on to share the second half of the verse. Look down in verse 3, the second half of verse 3. He shares the remedy. How do we actually renew that? First of all, we've got to recognize what's going on. We have a propensity to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And there's just, I've just started to touch the surface on, on some of the different ways that we can think more highly of ourselves than we ought, that we by default do. But now Paul tells us the remedy. He says, but to think with sober judgment. Here's the remedy. We, we put off that way of thinking, and then we're putting on a different way of thinking. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now think about that. What does it mean to be, think with sober judgment? You know, that, that word, it, it means exactly what you think it means. When I first heard the word sober, I thought, not drunk. And that's kind of what Paul's after here. Don't, don't act like a drunkard. Don't, don't. Be blinded in your judgment. And, and the effect is you're going to act like you're a drunk. When I, when I was a teenager, unfortunately, I was sinful and I many times got drunk. And I viewed the world and people differently and wrongly. I, I didn't think soberly about my own abilities. That's what leads drunk people to do dumb things. Didn't think soberly of my abilities. I thought it was brilliant when I would spout off stuff when I was drunk, thinking that I was like the greatest intellect that ever lived. And it was just babble. You know, I thought I was omni-capable physically and intellectually, but the reality is far short. Because my thinking was impaired. Didn't have good judgment. I wasn't evaluating soberly. In contrast, Paul says, think soberly. Now, he's not talking about alcohol, but he's giving that analogy. Don't, don't act like you're drunk on yourself. Instead, think soberly in relation to the faith that God has given to each and every one of us. Remind yourself of what's true soberly. Remind yourself of what's, what's really objectively truth. And he answers that for us. He says, what kind of an objective, sober judgment for you? He says, according to the measure of faith that's been given to each. The measure of faith that God has assigned. And what's he talking about? That's an odd way of saying the measure of faith that God has assigned. What, what I believe he's saying here, it could mean, one, one, one interpretation is it could mean that the amount of faith that God has assigned. But if we're evaluating ourselves based on the amount of faith, that too would be a cause for pride. So I don't think that's what Paul means here. But there's the same word for measure. It's, it also is translated standard, like a ruler. So when he says we evaluate ourselves soberly according to the standard or the ruler, the measure of faith that God's assigned, meaning that we all come equally by faith. And we, we measure ourselves against that rule, against the fact that God has given to each. We all only come the same way. None of us is better than the other. We all come the same way equally by faith that God's given. 
God's assigned the faith to begin with. And so that's the remedy to not thinking highly of ourselves, is seeing his mercy, and then also seeing the fact that we all come by his faith, that he assigns, that he gives. None of us come by works, is what he's getting at. None of us comes by any earning, by any merit. And that's the way to to put off that old way of thinking, to put on the new way of thinking, thinking soberly, remembering, you know what, I only am a believer and I only have any gifts and anything good by faith because faith has been given to me. So if we're to think soberly about ourselves, we'll see our weaknesses and we'll be aware of the fact that it's only by God's grace that we have faith in the first place. And it's important because all manner of division, and discord, and disunity creeps in. And the Apostle Paul is writing this not out of the context of a local church. He's writing this to a local church that was, that was potentially fraught with disagreements. And disagreements over food and days and things like that. And we're going to see that spelled out in the next few chapters. He's going to go on to explain some of the things that we should not, how to apply these verses, should not let these differences not think more highly of ourselves in food, not think more highly of ourselves in feast days and what we celebrate or don't celebrate, whether you celebrate Christmas or Easter or you think they're pagan holidays. He's about to spell it out in, in, in chapter 13 and 14. And so now he's preparing that church, and he's really preparing the church. God's using us for us as a church. Don't be, don't give in to division that comes from thinking yourselves more highly. And the reason it's important is because look in verse four, he says we are part of one body. He says for in one body, this is why, because in one body we have many members. And look in verse four, it says, and the members do not all have the same function. What's he saying here? He's saying that not only is God's mercy compel us to think soberly about ourselves, God's mercy compels us to think soberly about others. In the body. Verses 4 and 5 really explains what it looks like to think and relate to each other in the body of Christ rightly. And, and it's really what, what Kent Hughes refers to as, as three different characteristics of the body of Christ. And he, you see this in these verses. You see this unity. You see its, its diversity. And you'll also see its mutuality. You see that the body, we're, we're to be motivated by the fact that we are part of one body. It compels us to think soberly about others. We're part of one body together. He says, for there's one body. But then he says there's diversity, there's many gifts. And yet we're members, he says, of one another, which is a really weird way of thinking, right? You ever think about the fact that we're not just all members of the body? He doesn't just say it that way. He says it a little differently. He says, you're members of the body. We're one body. We got a lot of different gifts. And you're like, I'm good with that. I know that. But then he's saying, not only are you members of the body, you're members of one another. You are so closely intertwined that it can be said, you're not just members of the body, you're members of one another. And God's mercy compels us to think differently that way. To think differently about the body. To think that you're a part of the body. So why would you do anything to tear down unity? We're all one body. You just hurt yourself. Why would you, why would you do anything to, to disparage somebody else's function? Because just like a normal body, you need their function. Why would you think your function is more important? Because like a normal body, um, every function is important. And, and why, why? Why would you think you don't need somebody when we're members of, the, of each other? Well, all of us need one another. And let's think soberly. Let's renew our mind with that kind of sober thinking in response to God's mercy that He's made us a part of this body. He's not left us alone. 
When he saved us, he didn't save us just to be with ourselves. He called us to be a part of his body, to be nourished and cherished by him who is the head, but also by every member. It's a beautiful picture. And I was thinking about sometimes we, we view the body wrongly. You know, some people think, well, the heart, that's the most important part of the body, right? Because the heart, it pumps blood everywhere. And it gets oxygen everywhere. It gets, supplies nutrients. It's kind of the distribution system of the body in one sense. But what would you do without the lungs? That heart would have no oxygen to pump, right? And maybe the brain might say, well, I'm the brain. Without me, nothing happens. Nothing autonomic happens. Nothing, nothing happens um, that I make happen either. You know, if I think about it, I, can't, I stick my hand out here. But there's things that are happening inside me. The brain's controlling. So maybe the brain's the most important part, right? Well, Rob the brain of oxygen for seven minutes. That's all it takes. Just seven minutes, how frail we are. And the brain begins to die. Now you can double check that with some of the medical people here in the room. But I believe that at least it begins to have some brain damage from what I was reading. You know, deprive the body of oxygen, deprive the body of blood, deprive the body of the excretory system. And things won't work so well. Deprive the body of skin and we'll become diseased and our body will be susceptible to all kinds of pathogens and we can't regulate moisture and temperature well without the skin. Think about the diversity in the body. The same can be said with really every part of your body. From the circulatory system, the respiratory, the the skeletal, the endocrine, the digestive, the nervous, the whatever function you can think about. Each function is important, even though every function is very different. And it'd be very silly for an organ to start to envy the function of another organ. For, for the liver to say that, ah, I really want to be a heart right now. I'm going to stop being a liver. The body would have problems. It'd be silly to start to envy the function of the brain or the skeleton or the skin. And so to let ourselves envy the function of somebody else in the body or disparage the function of somebody else in the body would be just as ridiculous. And Paul says, think of yourself that way. Think of yourself. Because you're one body, you have a bunch of different functions, a bunch of different gifts, but you're members of one another. Look at verse five. It says, so we though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. What he's saying is there is no such thing as an independent Christian any more than there's such a thing as an independent liver walking around outside of the body. That would be a terrifying sight. You know, if we all walked in here and all we saw was different organs walking around the room, I think it would be a little disconcerting. It would also be a nightmare because it couldn't happen. We're, we're, we can't function As believers, we weren't designed to function on our own independently. We were designed to receive from the vine, from Jesus who is the head, our direction to his supply from the Holy Spirit. And we were designed to work together individually, members of one another. And what a wonderful mindset that is in response to his mercy. We put on that mindset of renewing our mind with who we've been called to be now. If we thought of each other that way, I think we'd respect each other. We'd appreciate each other. We'd value each other more, wouldn't we? We'd we'd more likely be more tender and loving if we thought of ourselves as members of one another, as invaluable to each other. We also probably would not highlight our own gifts as more significant. 
or see that they must be used. Renewing our mind because of the humble assessment of ourselves and others. Seeing how we relate to each other, how we think about ourselves, how we think about other people. It also applies to the gifts we've been given. The, the third implication of a life of worship lived in response to his mercy and renewing our minds is that God's mercies, they compel us to, to think soberly about spiritual gifts is what he tells us in verse six through eight. That's what he's, what he's getting at there. There's three ways that, that God's mercies compel us. They compel us to think differently about ourselves, to think differently about other people, and then differently about the gifts that he's given. I was thinking about the island nation of Puerto Rico and they are in desperate need right now. They are in desperate need. They need gifts from the outside to be given to them because they don't have the infrastructure right now. It got wiped out. It got decimated. They don't have the resources right now. They need gifts from outside to be given to them. They need basic things like water and food. They need people to give supplies to make repairs to the electrical grid. They need, they need people to give them other things and, and supplies for repairing their other infrastructure, the road systems and things like that. They're in need of gifts. And imagine if the gifts that are being given and hopefully will be given, and we can pray towards that as well, and I encourage you to, imagine though if the gifts that were given, these, these various gifts of mercy really, if, if, if water was supplied to Puerto Rico and yet you had one person hoarding all the water for the island. Or imagine if one person was, was keeping all the food to themselves. Or if one person was keeping all the supplies for repairing the electrical grid to themselves. Or whatever the different mercies, the gifts that they need to receive and are receiving. If someone was to keep them to themselves and not to distribute them to the larger island body it would be a crime it would be wrong there's something against it says no that's not good and yet we do the same thing at times when we keep the gifts that God has given to ourselves and we use them thinking they're just for us God's gifts are mercy gifts and they're given to the body for our common good not meant to hoard not meant for just our own good but meant for the whole body to benefit and then he talks about some of those gifts and what those gifts are. And he, he says, having gifts that differ. There's all kinds of different gifts that are needed for the body. This is not a comprehensive list, by the way. There are so many different lists of spiritual gifts. This is just one example. And Paul is giving an example of some specific gifts. And he also gives an example of general gifts, of public gifts and gifts that are not seen. So he's giving us different categories of gifts here. And he talks about some of the gifts that are more overt in the beginning. He says, if... According, each, according to the grace given, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith. Now the prophecy he's talking about is a, is a New Testament gift. And if you were with us at our Renew Retreat, you would have learned a little bit more about that. But it's a New Testament gift that's been given for the encouragement, upbuilding, and edification of the body. It's a timely word from the Lord for today. Um, it's, a, it's not infallible. I mean, it, it, it's, it's fallible, sorry. <laughs> These are gifts of encouragement that God gives in a timely way. So he says, we have to use them in proportion to our faith. If you believe that God is speaking to you, use it in proportion to your faith, but, but don't go where God's not leading. Use these gifts for the benefit of other people. Don't think more highly of your gifts than you ought to. You know, you ever get frustrated when people don't come to you asking for you to use what you think is your gift? You ever get frustrated when you feel like your gift's not being employed the way you want it to be employed? Man, I, I know that I'm tempted in all those ways. 
Are you put out when your contribution, your function is not recognized or valued in the way you think it should be? The command here is use whatever different gifts you have. And it doesn't seem to be dependent on a role here. Whatever your gift is, use it, he says. Whatever your gift is, use it. You don't have to have a specific role to use it. If you have the gift of prophecy, use it in proportion to faith. And it's the same gift and prophecy that he talks about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14, 1 Thessalonians. And he, the same gift of prophecy he talks about in Timothy. And he says, Timothy, you received a gift when they prophesied over you and lay on, laying on of hands and you received a gift through prophecy. If you have a gift, use it in proportion to faith that you've been given. And he says in, in verse 7, in service in, in our serving, one who teaches in his teaching. If you can serve... In any myriad of ways, think about the ways you have been gifted to serve. And I think everybody, and this is one of those general gifts. This is, there can be very specific gifts of service, but I think this is both. This is specific gifts of service, but also generally, everyone here is called to serve in some way. So if you have a gift that you can serve with, he says, then do it in your serving. Carry it out. Let your thinking be renewed and let your actions be renewed. This is what it looks like to present your body as a living sacrifice. Use the gifts God's given. One who teaches and is teaching. You know, I was thinking about all the different kinds of not only serving gifts, teaching gifts. You know, some are good at, if you're serving at troubleshooting, some are good at administrative stuff. Some are good at being creative. Other good, or people are good at fixing things. Some people are good at making food and cleaning. And some people are good with kids. Other, other people can be good at serving in, in grace kids or teaching or whatever that might be. If you have any gift, use it is what he's saying. If you can serve, serve. If you can teach, teach. You don't have to look for a formal role. You know, if, you, if you're a teacher, if you feel like you have the gift of teaching or you think you might have the gift of teaching, start stepping out. If you have children, teach them. If you have a spouse, you can mutually teach one another. If there's people in your workplace, you can teach them about God. If there's people at school, you can teach them about God. If there's people that you can help at school with an area they're not doing so well and you can teach them. There's a myriad of different ways that we can teach you might teach one another. That's what it means to be a disciple. As you make disciples, whatever you, you in some degrees, you're a teacher, disciple maker. Might lead somebody in a Bible study. Point is, no matter what you believe your gift is, you don't have to wait. He says, use it. And believe God, God will make it evident to the body around you. You know, don't, we're, not, we're not called to look for recognition. We're not called to look for acknowledgement or permission. We're just called to start, start ministering with the gifts you've been given. And he's, he's not given a comprehensive list, but he's given some examples of diversity and gifts that we can function in. Look in verse 8, he says, The one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. He's given different categories, different areas of gifting. The same word that's used there for, um, I think, exhortation is what he says in his exhortation. Same word used for encouragement. It's the same word that the Holy Spirit's called. The, the paraclete, the helper. He says, so if you, if you can help, if you can encourage, if you can exhort, then do it. If you feel like God's giving you an exhortation, God's giving you a word of encouragement, a, a word of comfort to someone else, then, then do that. Use that gift. He says, the one who contributes, meaning the, the one who's able to give, the one who can give. This is talking about financially or of their means, which we have. The Bible, it covers every area of life. It doesn't leave things out. And, and every gift we've been given, where it's physical or it's you know, mental, or you, know, you have an acumen, or if it's financial. God wants us to use every gift that we've been given to him. And everything we have, including everyone who has money and ability to contribute, he says, do it in generosity. 
The one who leads with zeal. If you have an ability or feel like you have a gift to lead, then start doing that with zeal, with eagerness. You don't have to have a position to do that or wait for somebody to do that. What you can do is say, great, what am I currently been given to do? I can lead myself first. That's the first place you start, leading yourself. And then you think, okay, well, maybe I can, I can disciple somebody else. That's a great way to see if you really are a leader is to, are you making disciples? Who are you actively discipling and leading? If you're married, you can lead, lead your spouse. Um, if, you, if you have children, you can, you can lead them. If you're in school, you can be a leader in school. If you're in the workplace, you can function as a leader. There's all kinds of ways to do this. To lead with eagerness. You know, whether you're a man or a woman, you can, you can seek to lead to diligently influence others for their good. Don't worry about whether you're recognized or not. Then. And then he talks about acts of mercy. And interestingly enough, he says, do it with cheerfulness. Why is that? Because often when we do acts of mercy, we expect somebody to acknowledge it. We expect to get credit for it. Or we expect to, somebody to recognize us for that mercy. He says, no, don't do it that way. Do it joyfully so that it doesn't really matter whether somebody acknowledges you or not. Um, do it with hilarity is the actual word there. With cheerfulness that you are showing mercy. Because you've received mercy. And that could include things like visiting the sick or caring for those in need or providing for those physically, financially, or visiting a nursing home. And if our acts of mercy are conditional, we're not going to do it with joy. But if they're based on the fact that they don't deserve it and that's why we are cheerfully giving to them, that's the way we honor God. That's how we can love God. And all these gifts, the point is not recognition, it's that each gift is put to use for the body. Viewing God's mercies, presenting our bodies living sacrifice, being transformed by our minds, it applies to absolutely every area of our lives. So we have to ask ourselves, is there a gift that I have that I'm not using for the good of the body? Is there a way I've been viewing myself more highly than I ought? Is there a way that I've been thinking of other people that's not been renewed in light of God's mercy? Is there any part of me or my body or any part of any gift that God's given me, what, whatever that might be from, from prophecy to teaching to, to giving, that I'm saying, God, I'm not willing to offer that up as a sacrifice. Is there any part of us like that? Or we're begrudging or hesitant? Any area of our life for gifts we've been given is off limits to God? Or we're not willing to present it to Him as a living sacrifice? If so, which I think there probably is for every one of us, how will we respond the good news is we've received mercy. And we will receive his new mercies every day that are not dependent on our response. But in light of his great mercies, may we worship God by renewing our mind and presenting our bodies to him. Amen? Well, let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for your word, I pray for the gift of conviction, but I pray there would be no condemnation. I pray instead we would worship you with every area of our lives, that we would withhold no area. God, I pray we would think humbly of ourselves in light of you and your mercy, your grace, and your gift of forgiveness, your faith. I pray we think rightly of others as being members of one another. I pray we think rightly of the gifts you've been given are for common good. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.